maybe maybe some unusual Christmas text, but uh, Hebrews chapter one, and then you can uh, have your finger, if you will, ready in Colossians. I want to go there as well. Uh, I've been thinking uh, this week about. Uh, I think some of we we mentioned this on Sunday night uh, in regards to just some testimonies and talking about how the Word of God speaks. Um, and that's kind of been on my mind this week. And I thought about the incarnation as God, uh, God speaking. Uh, that's exactly uh, what he does. And not only uh, John makes that clear in his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, so God has spoken uh, in Hebrews in, in these last days by his Son. So I just want to look at that tonight and, and really just meditate upon that. Uh, let me read the first couple of four verses in Hebrews and then we'll turn to Colossians and I want to read uh, those verses as well. He begins, God, after he had spoke long ago to the fathers <clears throat> in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, the Son, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. So that's the... <clears throat> when I was reading this, I thought that's the overall arching explanation, and I want to look at that. But then let's look at Colossians. I'm going to go ahead and read um, all these verses because I think the introduction Paul gives is important. But he, he begins this letter to the Colossians. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who were at Coloss, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now listen carefully what Paul says here. We give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even, it, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood, this was striking to me, the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bond servant who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf and he also informed us of your love in the spirit now his prayer, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all of creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Just a powerful uh, passage of scripture in Colossians there. But I want to look just briefly at Hebrews this, this evening. Uh, it's, there's kind of a parallel going on here. If you look in the first <clears throat> four verses there, he begins with God spoke. Uh, that's the key word, I think, in this. God is, God is speaking. If you think about it, God, the power of the word of God, God spoke and all things came into existence. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't assemble things and gather things already existing and then create by the power of his word and mold them into something. The power of his word brought those things into existence. There was nothing but God. And God didn't exist somewhere. There was nowhere. There was only God and the power of the word of God. So, so, so I just thought just as a side note here, how... How extraordinary is it that the God who was completely self-existent, satisfied, not needing anything to add to himself, that that God created, brought into existence humanity and all of the universe and then comes and speaks to it, communicates with it. That, that alone is extraordinary. But he says here that God spoke long ago. This is a long time ago in the past. Uh, he was speaking all the way back to creation. He was speaking, but then he chose a people to himself. And then he spoke to those people, the fathers, he means here. He spoke to those people through the prophets. That's long ago. That's how God operated with men. You remember, I, I was thinking when I was reading this, the experience that the Israelites had when they came to Horeb and, and the, the voice of God was so frightening and thundering that, that they said to Moses, we don't want that anymore. From now on, you go up there, you hear what he has to say, and you come and tell us. So frightening and fearful was the voice of God that God began to communicate to his people through the prophets, ultimately through the lawgivers and, and so forth. So God is working and speaking to people with the same voice, as it were, that brought everything into existence. Now he's channeling that now into the prophets and they are communicating to the fathers. That's what he's saying. That's how God talked to his people in the past. And then in the same text, he goes on to say, but now... 
in these last days, which I think began at the coming of Christ, the incarnation, particularly at the cross. But in these last days, who does it say he's speaking to now? Us. That's the amazing thing. God spoke to Jeremiah and Isaiah and Samuel and Elijah and Elisha. God spoke to his people, mediated it through the prophets. And now in our generation, we're still hearing his voice as we read the words of the prophet, but he's speaking to us now. God talking to you. So how does he do that? How is God speaking to us today? Well, he tells us in his son. So God talked to those in the past through the fathers, through the prophets, and he communicated with them. And everything they got from him was mediated through the prophets. And, uh, and by the way, the prophets were pointing towards this one who was to come in whom God would speak directly to us now. So now we're, we're not being mediated through a prophet or through some system of law so much as we are hearing the voice of God now in Christ. That's what Christmas inaugurates, as it were. The coming, the incarnation of Christ inaugurates now the voice of God upon the earth speaking to us. That's why I said it's a glorious reality, but it is a terrifying reality at the same time. Because now, if you reject the voice of God in Christ, then, then that's exceedingly worse than rejecting the voice of God through the prophets. Now you have God himself speaking to us. And to defy and to reject and to revile and to, and to blaspheme that voice leaves us without any hope whatsoever. So yes, it's a glorious reality, but it's also a terrifying reality. Notice in these verses as well what he says in regards to his son. He says that this son is, appoint, is the appointed heir of all things. He says later on uh, in Colossians that all things came into being uh, by him, through him, and for him. So, so what we're looking at in the incarnation is the, is the word of God incarnate speaking to us who, has the, who is the appointed heir of all things. And, and we, by the way, in our union with him but not apart from that union with him. Everything, everything that is created, Colossians says, was created by him, through him, agency, and for him. So it, it came into existence through, by him and, and was mediated through him, and his destiny is to go to him. He is the recipient of all that is. This is Christ. To me, that's what's stunning about <coughs> the incarnation is that all of this, all of this glory is housed in a little vulnerable baby body who couldn't speak, couldn't form words and language, who wet himself, I'm sure, as any baby would, a, a fully human baby. And within this flesh is God. The same God who spoke everything into existence, the same God through whom all things came into existence, and the same God to whom all those things will ultimately find possession. They are His. That's, that's amazing. 
This, this redeemed, cursed world, when it's restored in all the universe, the recipient of that restoration will be Christ himself. And its restoration is, comes about through the life and death and resurrection of this same Christ. That's who the baby is. That's who he is. He's the appointed heir of all things. He says in that verse as well that all things... He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, upholding all things by the word of his power. So he is the appointed heir of all things. He is the agent of Greek creation, uh, the radiance of his glory. That's an interesting word in the New American Standard, but the word there literally means brightness or an exact reflection. Uh, so when you see Christ, all you see is a baby, <laughs> In the incarnation. And even Isaiah 53 says, when you see him in his adulthood, there's nothing about him. that There's not an aura. Um, there's not a halo around his head. There's nothing about him that we would desire him. There's no, there's no appearance of majesty. And so if he's the exact representation of the, of the radiance of God Almighty, of the Father, then there must be some some way of perceiving that, that by generally speaking, we're missing. And that takes me to 2 Corinthians 4, which you hear me say all the time. Paul talks about the, our being blind to the gospel or veiled. The gospel is veiled to us because we don't see what? The glory of God in the face of Christ. We don't see that because we've been blinded by the, the, by the God of this world so that we might not behold that very thing. The angels saw that. You heard me already say, when they looked down and they saw the birth of Christ and saw the baby in the manger, that exultant uh, glory to God in the highest, they were beholding the glory of God in this infant child. And only a few people recognized that. And the rest of the world lie in sleep. In fact, we learn later on that when Herod heard of the birth of this king and by the Magi, uh, that Herod was troubled in all Jerusalem with him, troubling to them. But that's what Jesus is. He is the, the, the exact brightness. He is the display and the reflection of the glory of the Father. But not only in terms of his glory, but in his very nature. It says in that he is the exact representation of the nature of God, the nature of the Father, as it were. So, so we're seeing two things in Christ, the nature of God and the glory of God. But yet men carried that, he all the way to the cross, brutalized him, mocked him, spat upon him, and murdered him upon the cross. They clearly were not seeing the glory of God and the nature of God in this man. He was, a, he was an enemy to them. And he's an enemy to us in our fallenness. Because the demands Christ makes upon us require the, the, the abandonment of our own selfish desires and our own self-exaltation. And we're not prone in our fallenness to want to do that. In fact, in our fallenness, that's all we want to do. And Christ brings a completely different demand into the world. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. Uh, I thought it was interesting as well here that he upholds all things. And it's an fra interesting phrasing, by the word of his power. 
So, so he's upholding all things by the exertion of his power by his word. This is, the, this is Christ who's doing this. He's upholding all things by the word of his power. You've heard me say this before, but I've always had the imagery that, that God doesn't have to act upon the world so much to destroy it as he would to cease to act. In other words, this earth is rotating at the speed it's rotating and in the place it is in the universe by the word of his power, superintending the rotation of the earth. The only thing necessary for this earth to go slinging off into the universe and explode is is for him to cease to speak it doing this. That's the sobering reality. So if you think that that, that God can't, bring about things in the world to bring judgment into this world by the exertion of the word of his power, you're deceiving yourself and the world's deceiving itself as well. Uh, You heard me say, I won't go into detail because of younger people in here, but you probably heard the the news this week about some of the things that happened in one of the Senate hearing rooms. And And I thought to myself, it cannot be more perverted and corrupt than that in this world. And the, and the only complaint given by the guy was that he was being attacked for his preferences. No, that's not what you're being attacked for. But we've become so darkened in our understanding where we hear that stuff and we just go roll our eyes and we go on. There was a time when this whole nation would have been outraged by such acts as these. But I think this world ought to remember, especially at Christmas time, when they're marking the entrance into this world of God in human flesh, that they're going to have to answer to that God someday. And that's, that's exactly where we are. So the Christmas should be sobering for those outside of Christ, and it should be a source of rejoicing for those in Christ, for we are in Him, we have been removed from that judgment. So he upholds all things by the word of his power. The third, the last one, or the second to the last one here is that he, after he made purification for sins, mentions there, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So this baby, this child in the manger is here to make purification for sins. The Bible tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. The whole, the whole religious law of the Jews was filled with blood. I mean, they were slaughtering stuff all the time. There's no way you could be a Jew in the Old Testament and think that the shedding of blood had nothing to do with relating to God. I mean, that was the emphasis everywhere, whether it be turtle doves, rams, lambs, you name it, they were slaughtering it. And they would bring them by the thousands at the Passover. And and I can't even imagine the number of goats and lambs and, and all sorts of animals that were slaughtered and their blood poured out and they're thrown upon the altar. How in the world... Could the Jews, it would seem, misunderstand that the Lamb of God would have to be slain. And a lot of them, I think, rejected Christ because they weren't anticipating a lamb who would pour out his blood. They were anticipating a mighty warrior king who would spill the blood of his enemies. That's what they were looking for. 
They weren't looking for one who would submit to his enemies and allow them to be the instrument of his own blood being poured out. He made purification for sin, this child in the manger. And he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high where I believe to this day he is awaiting that, that one command from the father someday that says, son, go get your bride. Go get your bride. The wedding feast is prepared. The bride has been prepared. She is awaiting you. She is ready. Her lamps are filled with oil. Go, son, and get your bride. And when the bride's taken out of here, then there is nothing left in this world but a world ripe for the judgment of God Almighty. I was talking to Hope, me and her were talking, but I said, if you read the Revelation description of Christ at his next coming, it's not going to be a quiet, humble slipping in in the dark of night. He is coming triumphant. I love it when it says he has, a, he has a ribbon or a banner on his thigh that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And his eyes are flaming fire. Frightful person. But he's our king. He's our king. He's our husband. We are his bride. And he's coming back to vindicate his own holiness and righteousness someday. He will not slide in at night somewhere unawares to the people of this world. They will all know. I love Philippians. It says every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's every tongue in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. That means every knee and every tongue will acknowledge who he is. This is the Father speaking to us in the Son. He's come to speak. So turn with me to Colossians. In verse 2 through, two through 8 there in chapter 1, I really see there the fruitfulness of the gospel that he mentions here. Verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth. And then he qualifies that. What is the word of truth? It's the gospel. That's the word of truth, the gospel. Then he says, it has come to you just as it has, it has in all the world. It is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood. And this was critical to me, the grace of God. In truth. So I'm, I'm doing this. The word of truth is the gospel, and the gospel is the word of, of the truth of the grace of God. So, so you're putting all these together. That is the gospel. That is the good news. Is that, that God is a God of grace and he has made, made ready or made, made available now to those whom he's called this grace and this removal of judgment. So it is the fruitfulness of the gospel that Paul builds this upon. They learned it, verse 7, from Epaphras. He says, our beloved fellow bondservant and a faithful servant of Christ who also informed Paul and Timothy of their love in the spirit. So a unique, very unique kind of love in the spirit. So, <clears throat> so just the thought there, the fruitfulness, <clears throat> excuse me, of the gospel. And then in verse 9 through 12, really, and kind of beyond Paul's unceasing prayer for them. 
He says, since we heard of this, this effective gospel, this, this embracing of the word of truth, the grace of God, and, and the, the spiritual fruit of spiritual love you have. In other words, their, their lives were validating the effectiveness of the gospel in their lives. And since we heard that, we have not ceased to pray for you. Isn't that strange to me, uh, to you? Because we pray earnestly and they receive the gospel and then we, we have some let up then. It's like we prayed for them, they got into the kingdom and we let them go then. But he's saying here, since we heard that you've come into the kingdom, we hadn't stopped praying for you. We are not ceasing to pray for you. And I think the reason is, is because the entrance into the kingdom is just that. It's the entrance. There is a whole unfolding of the glory of God and uh, the reality of growth and fruitfulness in God that is necessary after your entry that will bear evidence of your having truly entered in. He says, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask. So he's interceding on their behalves. So look at these uh, this prayer. First, that you would be filled, filled up to overflowing, I think he means here, with the knowledge of his will. This is God's will. And in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul knows that the entrance into the kingdom by grace introduces you into the environment as it were whereby these things may be understood. I'm praying that God would still be exercising grace there and fill you with the knowledge of his will. I remember uh, as I became a Christian early in my Christian life, I was obsessed with the will of God. What is the will of God for me? What is God's will for me? And I, I was always asking that and, and, and distressing sometimes to me because I couldn't, couldn't discern what the will of God for me was. And thank God that he opened Romans 8, 28 to me and I realized that here's God's will for me, conforming me to the image of his son. That's his will. You want to know what his will for you today is? That's it. Now, as far as how he goes about doing that circumstantially in your life, I don't have a clue. And I don't think he would tell you if you asked him. <laughs> because you would miss the point. In other words, the will of God is my conformity to the image of Christ. So therefore, knowing now the will of God, Father, give me a heart that is yielded to that process and always mindful of it in whatever circumstances come my way by your providential hand. Whether that be disease or whether that be prosperity and abundance. Let me always be mindful of what your will is in my life. And it always is that. It always is that. And as I shared Sunday morning, don't think that's working against your joy. That's, that's working towards your joy. Remember what Paul says about his fellow workers? We are fellow workers with God for your joy. This is your conformity to Christ's image is for your joy. We resist because we think it's going to rob us of joy in this life. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. So Paul is praying that they might be filled with the knowledge of his will in, and this is the context of this feeling, but also here, spiritual wisdom. Paul talks about the wisdom of this world and how there are not many wise and, and not many noble that God has called. 
but how the wisdom of God is foolishness to the men in this world. The wisdom of the world uh, seem, seems to take the wisdom of God as foolishness, but there is a spiritual wisdom. And Paul's saying, I'm praying that you will be filled with that as well. There's enough wise people, worldly wise people existing in this world already. Uh, I don't need to add to that list. Uh, I could match them anyway. There are people who are gifted minds and they spend all of their lives delving into libraries and into books. And I always think of Solomon at the end of Ecclesiastes. Be warned, brothers, the reading of many books can bring misery. It'll, it'll paralyze you. There's no wonder that so many philosophers took their own lives because they answered question after question after question and they kept pushing back and pushing back and they got all the way to the original question and they couldn't find an answer by their own wisdom and they were left hopeless. That's because that answer is not known but by spiritual wisdom and by the gift of God. Spiritual wisdom. Paul is praying for these people who have entered into the kingdom that they might have knowledge filled with the knowledge of the will of God and with all spiritual wisdom and understanding, he adds to that. Maybe parallelism there, but maybe a nuanced thing as well, an understanding. Uh, when I was reading that, I thought about as you grow in Christ and I think in your maturity, you begin to just watching how God works through the years, how the Word transforms you and teaches you and instructs you, and, and just how the Spirit kind of learns to t teach you as well, you begin to get a sense of how God works. You don't ever put Him in a box because He can do the thing you didn't expect Him to do, but you, but you begin to see the, the, sometimes the subtle and powerful ways God works and sometimes the massive, open, public ways He works. You get a sense of how God operates in His people and in the world for His own glory. You just, you just begin to get a sense of that. That was alien to me when I first became a Christian. I didn't have a clue how he worked. All I know is that he brought me to my knees and he opened my eyes and he saw and I saw the, the depth and the weightiness of my own sin. And I knew that there was unless he provides for a remedy, there is none for this condition. And in that same moment, he revealed to me Christ and the glimpse I saw of his glory was more than sufficient to convince me there's the remedy. That's the extent of any wisdom I had. I didn't have a clue at how God was going to unfold things in my life. But I was committed at that moment that I want to follow this Christ. He is my deliverance and I want to follow him. Have I done that perfectly? No, and you haven't either. <laughs> but, but he has impressed upon us to follow him. But as you followed him, you began to learn how God works in your life, right? Paul is praying that they would understand this as well. Verse 10, and he wasn't praying this to no end. Look in verse 10, those, that phrase, so that. That tells me that what he's about to say is connected with what he's praying for. I'm praying that you be filled with knowledge of his will and that you would be filled with spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? So that you would walk in a manner worthy of Christ. So he's got a reason for praying this way. He wants these believers, these who have just been introduced into the kingdom, he wants their lives to, to be manifest as worthy of the great sacrifice of Christ by which that life was brought into being. 
I'm not suggesting here that they were going to somehow earn what Christ had provided for them. But listen, when you think about what Christ has provided for us in the new birth, doesn't it make you want to desire to live a life that would somehow reflect his worthiness at least? Have you seen the movie Private Ryan? To me, one of the most moving moments in that movie was at the end at the bridge there when the captain was there and Private Ryan and they had basically given up their entire, their entire uh, platoon, as it were, to get this one guy, Private Ryan, home. And as he's dying there on the bridge, having been shot multiple times, and Private Ryan runs to him and he grabs the private and he, and he pulls, this, pulls him up close and with, a, with his last breath he says, earn this, earn this. And then that's, fat, that's backwards. But at the beginning of the movie, there's an old man at Arlington Seminary and he's sitting in front of a gravestone with a Captain Miller's name on it and he's weeping there. And he's distressed as to whether or not he's earned it because he's remembering that. And, and his wife comes alongside and he looks at her with tears in his eyes and to his family. And he says, have I been a good husband? And she don't know what he's talking about. And he's crying and he says, have I been a good husband and a good father? And she finally says, yes, you have. He was so concerned that he might live his life after such sacrifice, worthy of the sacrifice. That's the message Paul is getting to us. And as much as, my, as much as you and I fail, doesn't your heart want to do the same? Doesn't your heart want to live a life that would at least be, con, at least be consistent with the, with the nature of the sacrifice? In fact, Paul speaks of that. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. If he is to suffer, then are those who follow him not willing to suffer as well? If he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, will we fight when we have to suffer or will we trust in him and trust our soul to him as he entrusted his to the Father? He's given us an example. Will we live worthy of that? Paul says, I want these things. I'm praying without ceasing for you that you might live your lives like this and to please him in all respects. Notice how he kind of defines how do you do that? Well, you bear fruit. You bear fruit in every good work. I cited from John this past Sunday. And Jesus speaking of, if you abide in me and I abide in you, then you, you will bear fruit. And the Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And, and by doing so, prove to be my disciples. Paul wants them to live their lives worthy of Christ. And in a way, pleasing to God and bearing fruit, which would demonstrate that they were indeed His and they had been brought to Him by grace. Bearing fruit in every good work. Every good work. I was thinking about the expansive phrasing there. There are areas where I'm just naturally inclined. If you need... If you need something done on your roof or in your basement, call me. Uh, I'm just, I'm just, my, my instincts go there. I flourish doing that stuff and those are good works and I want to do those, but I can't narrow my good works down to just those areas. They are good works that makes them make themselves available to you and I every day. Isn't that true? And how often do we 
just overlook that or we don't notice it. Maybe we don't ask the Lord in the morning, Lord, make me sensitive. Make me, make me sensitive to the opportunities that you will provide in this day and let me be an instrument of you ministering to others. Jesus lived his whole life like that. He said, I didn't come to be served. I didn't come to, to, to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. The entire life of Jesus, the incarnation, all the way to the cross and the resurrection was as a servant to provide for what is needed in humanity, for his own glory, yes, for, for the glory of the Father, but to meet their needs. And it's embarrassing that as his disciples, we don't think that way more frequently, that we exist in that way not only fruitful and growing in good works but he's praying as well that they might grow there in verse 10 that they might be increasing in the knowledge of God so I'm taking this to mean all these things in Paul's mind as he's praying are are instrumental to their growing in their knowledge of God so so if you say I'm saved and and that none of this other stuff happens, I'm, I suspect that 50 years from now, you won't have grown in your knowledge of God. You may have grown in your, in your pride in yourself. You might, have grown, you might grow in your discipline and your ability to do the things that the Bible says you ought to do, but you will not have come to a growing and increasing knowledge of God, which by the way, is the, right, is the only way to think rightly about yourself. Paul said, think not more highly of yourself than you ought. And you've heard me say many times, there is a way you ought to think about yourself, but don't think beyond that. Don't think more highly than that. And the only way you can find that place is to think highly of God and to grow and increase in your knowledge of God. When you see him in his glory, you've heard me say this, I don't know how pride can long exist as a habitual pattern in our lives when we beheld the glory of Christ. Because it'll make you ashamed if you sustain it very long. Because you'll realize that you've become the man who who looked upon all those and said, Lord, thank you that I'm not like all these other men. That's what you'll become because you're not seeing his glory and you're always concentrating on your own. And when you concentrate on your own, it gets inflated and you think more highly of yourself than you're all, you all. Paul knows this. In fact, Paul, Paul had a thorn to prevent it in his own life. You, you recall Paul was taken up into the third heaven and was exposed to revelations which we, he was not even allowed to speak. And Paul recognizes that I, this thorn, this messenger of Satan was given me to keep me from thinking more highly of myself than I ought. Because I've seen things that if I didn't have this thorn and this, and this thing to drive me towards this utter dependency on Christ and the glory of Christ, I would be like any other man and I would lord it over you. And that's exactly what he would have done without his thorn. Growing in the knowledge of God, he says. I love verse 11 as well. Strengthened with all power. You know, scripture say bodily exercise profiteth little. That's my theme verse. That's why I'm so trim. 
Bodily exercise profiteth little in comparison to spiritual exercise. You know what the strength you will need to endure the, the coming diagnosis in your life? It's not physical strength. That's going to waste away rather quickly. You might last longer than I would because you're stronger physically than I would. But guess what? We're both going to meet the same appointment. The strength that's going to be necessary in that day is strength in the inner man. The, the firm conviction that if this body wastes away, I will but put off this sinful flesh and step into the glories of God and take my inheritance that's the strength a man needs inwardly. And if he has that while he still has a healthy body, all the, all the more wonderful that is. And he can go out into the world and, and not be fearful and stand true and bold for the truth of God's word. Strengthened. Strengthened, he says, with all power. According, what's the measure of that power? What's, what's the limit of the power with which Paul is asking you to be strengthened with? He sets the limit as God's own power. You see that? According to the, his glorious might. So, so Paul's not asking for a little power. He's saying, I pray that you would be strengthened with might in the inner man. I'm adding inner man there, but that's what I'm, he's talking about. I pray that you would be strengthened according to the glorious might of him who strengthens you. So, so if you think that you can't find enough strength to live this Christian life, then you're limiting the very power of God. In fact, if you think that, you're probably relying on your own strength. And it may be that until you come to the end of yours, you'll not know the power of Christ's strength here. And maybe that's what Paul's praying for. Lord, help them not to be strengthened in themselves help them not to be relying upon themselves help them to come to this knowledge of God where they understand that they have nothing for which to offer him up they have they are inadequate in every way and that they might release themselves into you and to become an instrument in your hands so that then your glorious might might be manifested in their lives you remember Paul Storm what does he say I will rather rejoice because with this thorn and my utter lack of dependency on self, then the power of Christ is made strong in me. So therefore, he gave praise and he endured his thorn to the rest of his days. He endured it so that Christ's strength may be made firm in him, not his own. Strength in the inner man. He goes on to say, according to his glorious might, and here's another extension here. Why so? Why, why does Paul want them to be strengthened with power according to his glorious might? Well, he tells us, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Now, that goes full circle. Because you're talking to people who are likely going to be persecuted for their Christian faith. And what are they going to need most in that day? They're going to need steadfastness and patience. How does, how does Paul anticipate they're getting there? Look at his prayer. Look at his prayer. Read it again. 
He thinks that they need to be filled with the knowledge of his will, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding, and that they might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in every respect, and that they may bear fruit and in good works, and that they might increase in the knowledge of God and be strengthened there. That's the way he thinks that in that day they'll be steadfast and patient. I worry sometimes that, and I'm putting myself in this group, that we're not waiting around. I worry that we're waiting around until that day gets there, and then we're going to work on steadfastness and patience. And it may be that we ought to be working on that now. We ought to be praying for that now because I don't know about you, but I don't want to be trained for a battle once the battle starts. I would rather go into the battle having already been trained for it and know what to do or else I'm going to get taken down pretty quick in the battle because I'm not accustomed to fighting the enemy. And that's what I think Paul is praying for here. In the last 11 and 12 there, uh, he adds that. In my Bible, there's a semicolon after patience. It's like he's picking up uh, the joyously here is attached to what he's going to say next. And I think that's right. But he says, strengthen with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Joyously, there's the Sunday morning, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So at the end of all this, it's producing what? Joyous thanksgiving to God. And so I can't help but believe this and all the other writings of Paul that Paul, Paul has this long view of God's glory being manifest and praises to God as he says over and over in Ephesians 1 to the praise of the glory of his grace. To the praise of God, Paul has all these in mind for these believers and he's praying earnestly, not just for them that they might be steadfast and patient, but that through their being that way, God might be glorified. And so when we pray for one another, maybe we ought to pray thinking that as well. Yes, pray for one another in all the ways that Paul describes here in a million other ways, but somewhere in our prayer, be reminded it is so that many thanksgivings will pour out to you, Father, for you, to you they belong, and to you is the glory. Lord, heal them so that they might manifest your praise even when we pray for healing and whatever we pray Pray as Paul does, that it might manifest your glory and that it might redound to the thanksgiving of many, he says in another place, of his own sufferings and his afflictions and their deliverance. I was planning to go through 13 through 23, but that's the introduction. But we'll pick that up at another time because now he's going to get into the, to the son in whom this is all made possible. When he says, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And then he goes on to describe that son. So I thought, I just felt like that's a good word, especially at Christmas, because the same God who spoke to the fathers and diverse in many ways in times past in these last days spoke to us in his son. And he's still speaking. He's still speaking in his son. And that son went to the cross so that he might deliver us from the domain of darkness in which we lived all of our days 
and bring us into the kingdom of his son. That is an amazing, uh, that is uh, the greatest gift mankind could have ever had. Stand with me tonight. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the new birth. Thank you that you have rescued us who have believed from, from the domain of darkness. And what a, what a way of saying it. Uh, it was darkness. It was utter darkness. But it was more than that. It was a domain. It was a, it was a kingdom, as it were, in which we lived in all of our days. And we were oblivious to the darkness, having grown accustomed to it. But by your grace, through, the, through Christ, through the sufferings and resurrection of Christ, Father, through that instrument of Christ, you delivered us, you rescued us from that domain and delivered us over into the kingdom of your beloved Son, whose incarnation we celebrate this season of the year. Bless those who've come tonight, Father. We pray for our, all of our church brothers and sisters, those uh, beyond the walls tonight. Lord, we just pray that you would make us a people who love you, a people who honor you, a people who desire to see your name glorified, not only in our lives, but in our corporate lives together and in our ministry as well. We ask these things in Jesus' name for his sake and for his glory. Amen.